0: Today we want to talk about a great gift of God. What might that be? The Bible. It's an amazing gift that God has given to us. It was written over a period of approximately 1,600 years by dozens of different people. It's a great gift that God would give us his written word. In the midst of many falsehoods of our day, we have a word of truth, God's truth, real truth. The other day I was reading in the book of Nehemiah and I was very impressed. They read the word of God. They didn't have the full Bible, of course, at that time but they had the Mosaic law, the first part. I'm impressed of how they dealt with God's word as it was presented to the people. Let's read about it, Nehemiah chapter eight. <clears throat> Notice as we read what great honor is given to God's word. And all the people assembled themselves together as one man into the street which is before the water gate. They spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. Upon the first day of the seventh month, And he read therein before the street that is before the water gate from the morning until midday. Imagine that hours reading right from God's word. Before the men and the women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were paying attention. (laughs) They were absorbing God's truth. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit or tower of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema and Anaiah, and Urijah, and Hilkiah and Maasiah on his right hand. And on his left hand, Padaiah and Mishael and Malchiah and Hashem, and Hashbadena, Zechariah, and Meshelam. That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> Most of them quite unfamiliar names. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. <laughs> they were giving honor to the word of God that was To be read. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up of their uh, hands. They bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua and Bani and Cherubiah. Jamin, Aqab, Shabbathe, Hodijah, Measiah, Kaleida, Azariah, Jezabad, Hanan, Peleah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law. So they were explaining it to him. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book, in the law of God, distinctly. That's important, I believe, when God's word is read and when sermons are given that it be done distinctly so people can hear and understand. And gave the sense, so explained it. And caused them to understand the reading. Paul did this kind of thing when he was winning people for Jesus. Go to the scriptures, read them, explain them. And Nehemiah, which is the tirshatha, that is, the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, and all the people said, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor cry, because all the people cried. When they heard the words of the law, why would they cry? I think because they realized they weren't doing what the law told them they needed to do. And so they were interacting with the word of God, the truth of the Lord. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to them who have nothing that is prepared. For this day is holy to Our Lord, neither be sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's quite a statement. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So he said, don't mourn. Be happy. It's a good day. So the Levites stilled all the people, saying, hold your peace, for the day is holy. Neither be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth, great happiness, good time. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So you see what a prominent place the word of God had. And how they listened to it for hours. and How it was explained to them. How they received it. And the joy of the Lord would be their strength. And on the second day, they were gathered together, the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests and the Levites, to Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. So they kept on doing that, understanding what is God's word really saying. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should stay in booths, other places called tabernacles, in the feast of the seventh month. You see, that's one of the set feasts. They were to build booths or tabernacles and live in them for a week. And that represented in part that we are strangers and travelers through this life. We have no permanent dwelling in this world. Our permanency is in heaven and we're to live for God who is eternal. So in the feast of the seventh month, they did this and that they should publish or publicize and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the mountain and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches from thick trees to make booths or tabernacles as it is written. Like the Bible said, they just found that place. So the people went out and brought them, and made themselves tabernacles, every one upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. And all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made tabernacles, booths. And they sat under the booths For since the days of Joshua, son of Nun, to this day, had not the children of Israel done so. So for all these centuries, even though God's word said they were to do this, they hadn't done it. And there was very great gladness. (laughs) They were doing what God had told them to do. Also, day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read in the book of the law of God. (laughs) So during this Feast of Tabernacles they got to hear God's word over and over and over. This was prominent. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according to the fashion. I was so impressed as I read this chapter of how they dealt with God's word, how they dealt with the law of Moses at that time, how they respected that, how it was taught, how they understood it, how they paid attention, and then how they put it into practice. And they kept learning about it and hearing about it. Well, we do this very much, don't we, as we come to church. In fact, in one of the churches after I'd become the senior pastor, I referred to this passage about reading and teaching God's word. And I explained to them that that's what I intended to do. And that's what I did and what I still do. Try to read God's word, try to explain God's word, try to encourage people to abide by the truths of the Lord. A great gift of God, the Holy Scriptures, the sacred scriptures. It's inspired. A couple verses I'd like to call to your attention. First of all, 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16 and 17 2 Timothy 3:16 you know John 3:16 well here's another good one to learn as well All scripture is given by inspiration of God A good translation of that is all scripture is God breathed And it is profitable, it's worthwhile. The Bible is worthwhile. Gives four reasons for doctrine, which means teaching. So it's profitable, it's worthwhile for teaching, and for reproof for telling us off where we're off track, for correction for getting us back on track, getting us in the way of the Lord and for instruction in righteousness teaching reproof correction instruction in righteousness four things why so that verse 17 the man of god the person of god may be perfect or mature thoroughly furnished to all good works thoroughly furnished to all good works The end and purpose of the Bible is to help us live a life of service, a life of good works. It's to be translated by our daily lives. I remember reading about someone, I think he said his dad had the best translation. (laughs) He put it into practice. He lived it. And in a sense, that's true. That would be the best translation. Take God's truth, put it into practice, Live it day by day, that the man of God might be thoroughly furnished to all good works and his service. So we find that this great gift of God is inspired from the Lord. It's breathed out from God. Now another passage that tells us this as well is Second Peter the last verse of the first chapter, 2 Peter 1.21. For the prophecy did not come in old time by the will of man. See, it wasn't finding its origin in people. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the prophets, God guided them, the Holy Spirit spoke through them, gave them the truths to re- give, and then, of course, it got recorded in the Scripture many times and became a part of the sacred Scripture. Now, one of the interesting things here is interpreting God's Word. We get guidance in the preceding verse here, 2 Peter 1.20 Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private or individual interpretation. And then in verse 21, which we just talked about, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what's it saying there? It's saying that the Holy Spirit, the author of scripture, is the one who gives us understanding of scripture. We can't just say, well, here's what it means. We need God's help in understanding what it means. And scripture often is the greatest commentary on itself, as the Holy Spirit guides us from one passage to another. So the Bible is inspired. The Holy Spirit is here to help us to understand it, who inspired it, God breathed. So that's the first thing we need to understand about the written word of God. It's inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. Secondly, what about the New Testament? Both these passages are from the New Testament, Second Timothy, 2 Peter. A lot of it was in the process of being written. How did it get added to the sacred scripture? This is quite a study in itself. Pretty well boiled down to two things. Number one, in order to be a part of the New Testament, part of the Bible, it needed to have apostolic authority. It needed to be authorized, written by, or at least under the authority of an apostle. That's important to recognize. Secondly, it needed to be generally accepted by the churches. The letters of Paul, other letters, other parts, a general acceptance of the churches of these books. Those are the two things that were so important. Apostolic authority and general widespread acceptance by the churches. Now, one thing that I'd like to point out is that they were aware of other books. They had to choose which ones they believed God wanted in the scripture. They could not impart that authority to the Bible, but they could recognize that it's a part of the Bible, and that's what happened. They didn't give it the authority, God gave it the authority, but they recognized this authority And as I said, did it have apostolic backing? And was it generally accepted in the churches? Now, it took several centuries before they finally compiled it together and recognized the New Testament, which we now have, as being the Word of God. As you read the Bible very carefully, you'll discover Paul wrote at least two other letters we don't have to the Corinthians. Well, they're not in the Bible. Apparently, God didn't want them in the Bible. (laughs) God caused to survive and be accepted those that we believe he wanted there. Years ago, many old writings were put together, and it was called the Lost Books of the Bible. I understand the publisher wanted that title because he thought it would sell more. He probably did but that implies, if not authorizes the thought, that other books should be in the Bible and they aren't there. Well, that isn't so. Remember that the early church, they knew about these books. Perhaps all of those in this book called the Lost Books of the Bible. They had to choose. Did they have apostolic authority? Were they generally accepted by the churches? And again, they did not impart that authority, they recognized the inherent authority that it had in itself. One great group of writings we call the Apocrypha. No doubt they were fully aware of the Apocrypha. We believe there are some inaccuracies in the Apocrypha, especially in the book of 2nd Maccabees. One of my courses, I chose to study the Apocrypha, so I read it and wrote about it and studied it and what have you. And so they had, like the Apocrypha, but they did not include it in the scripture. Over a millennium later, over a thousand years later, one of the great churches did include it in their Bible. But Jerome who had translated it along with the Bible, particularly in the preface or addendum to one of the translations of one of the books of the Apocrypha, indicated that it was not to be used to establish teaching. In other words, he was not saying that it had biblical authority, even though he translated it. It's worth reading. I'd suggest you might read the Apocrypha, but, It was not accepted by that church until the mid-1500s at the Council of Trent. Now, we don't believe it should have been accepted then. We go along with Jerome, one of their so-called church fathers, that it's not to be included that way. They had a lot of other good devotional booklets back then, too, or stories. One very well-known was called The Shepherd of Hermas, and a letter to Barna- by Barnabas, a lot of ones. So we, centuries later, that may know about some of these other books need to recognize that they knew about other books too, but they did not feel it should be accorded as a part of the canon or the rule of scripture, it shouldn't be a part of the Bible. It's important to know these things. Again, what was accepted in the New Testament Apostolic authority and general acceptance by the churches, not giving authorization to them, but recognition of the inherent authority of the scriptures themselves, recognizing this is the Bible. This is the part that we take as the sacred scriptures. A third thing. Through the ages, there have been very strong attacks against the Bible, It isn't just our day and age. It's happened for centuries. Brilliant people have come out against the Bible, but brilliant people have also come out with faith in the Bible. Many so-called scholars don't really believe the Bible, but remember there are other people equally scholars that do believe the Bible. So it isn't a matter of scholarship. It's a matter of faith. Many things that were thought to be wrong, I understand even at one point they thought that Abraham was not a real person, like some say about Homer. And yet they found out through various things in archaeology, yes, he was a real person. Other things, archaeology has disproved the scholars' position, have substantiated the Holy Scripture. There were two men who were very brilliant, great intellects, lived over in United Kingdom, in England. And they decided they would study into it and Overthrow Christianity. They release people from these superstitions. One of them said, "Well, I'll, I'll take the Apostle Paul. I'll study him." Another one said, "I'll take the resurrection of Jesus. I'll study that." And so their object was to topple Christianity and release people from their bondage of thinking this is true. Well, guess what happened? <laughs> Both of them, as they studied it intently, discovered that yes. Jesus is raised from the dead. Yes, the conversion of the Apostle Paul was valid. It isn't a matter of intellect. (laughs) It's a matter of faith. Actually, the historical documents, if you want to look at it that way, that's extremely important. They substantiate these things. One person who had the means went to study the book of Acts archaeologically, all the places where Paul was. And guess what? He found out many, many things that substantiated the Holy Scripture, the language that was used, various things. And it's become a classic. In our day and age, have you heard of, I mentioned him before, Lee Strobel. He wrote The Case for Christ and other books. Lee Strobel, by the way, we heard him preach once down in Southern California. He especially wanted to overthrow Christianity. His wife was a Christian. He was a legal editor for the Chicago Tribune, a man of law and knowledge of legal things. So he began to study it. And not just a little bit. He'd go to experts in various fields. Like this argument that apostles hallucinated when they saw Jesus. So he went to an expert on hallucination. (laughs) And the expert explained to him, groups of people don't hallucinate. One person hallucinates. And so that was shot down. And other things, different things that were said... And finally, when he honestly confronted all this evidence, all these proofs, as it were, guess what? He became a Christian. (laughs) In fact, he became a preacher. The evidence, the proofs are there. The Bible has been attacked for years, but it stands. Now on the sheet here that you were given it says anvil and hammers what's that about the basic thought is this as the decades go by and the blacksmith uses the anvil he uses the hammer he does many remarkable things with metal but what wears out over a period of time The hammers wear out. Does the anvil wear out? No, it doesn't. And that's like the attacks upon the Word of God. They don't persist, they wear out, as it were. They're seen to be false, but the anvil stands. That's the Word of God, the Holy Scripture. And then I mentioned earlier the archaeological confirmations. But there's another thought, the empirical confirmation. What's that mean? The Bible works. Lives are redeemed. Drunkards are rescued. Dope addicts are cured. Homosexuals are freed. The Bible works. The empirical test is valid. If you read something and it works, then it must be true. (laughs) True. The Bible passes that test. Lives are changed. And there's another thing about the Bible. Although written over about 1,600 different years, as I mentioned, and although written by dozens of authors guided by the Holy Spirit, the Bible is one. A lot of people, one of the arguments against it, it contradicts itself. Well, not really, if you understand it rightly. (laughs) If you understand it through, I believe, the Holy Spirit. It's a unity of truth. What about this issue of manuscripts? One of the things I learned in seminary is this. The minor differences of manuscripts do not affect any major teaching. Yes, there, as people copied them and recopied them, a few little differences crept in. They miscopied them or maybe thought they could improve at a point or two. But no major teaching is affected with these minor differences in the manuscripts. What we actually believe is this. We believe that in the original, which is called the autograph, in the original manuscripts that it was perfect without error. These differences crept in as people copied it. But no major teaching is affected by these. And so perhaps you've heard this expression, the Bible is our rule of faith and practice. Yes, in the light of everything I've said, that makes sense, doesn't it? It's by the Bible that we are to go. It's God's word. We can have utmost confidence in it. This great gift of God. How then should we deal with it? A couple of things. Back in First Peter chapter two, verse two and three Like newborn babies, desire the sincere milk of the Word, so that you may grow thereby. If so be, you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. So like the little baby wants the milk, he cries. She makes a big fuss, wants the milk. says that's the way we ought to be, deep down desiring the word of God. We really want it with all our soul, as it were. And it says, if that's the case, then God's been good to us in verse 3 there. So we need to study the Bible. We need to learn the Bible. In church, we ought to hear the Bible. And at home, in our private time with God, we should study the sacred scriptures. I close with one of many scriptures that could be mentioned. Back in Psalm 119, verse 97. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. We should love God's word throughout the day. We should be thinking about it. We should be reading it at times. We ought to memorize parts, put it in our hearts that way. And the Holy Spirit then can take what we know and bring it to remembrance, as Jesus promised at the Last Supper. The Bible, God's great gift to man. Let's make use of it. Let's translate it into our everyday lives. Let's honor it. Let's believe it. And let's know this, even if there are certain things we don't understand, they might not make sense to us. Still, the Bible is true. My unbelief doesn't negate the truth of the scripture. Whether I believe it or not is immaterial. (laughs) The Bible is true. So I better believe it. (laughs) You better believe it. It's God's word. It's God's word of salvation. It's God's word of deliverance through Jesus Christ, his son. May we pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the sacred scriptures. Thank you that you gave them to us. Thank you that we recognized what's to be the Bible and what isn't to be. The part that indeed is the Holy Bible. We know we don't give it that authority. You give it the authority. And we believe that what we have is what you have given And what we don't have is what you didn't want to be there. We don't believe in adding things to the scripture, that it's all sufficient. We don't believe in taking away things from your scripture. We need it all. And so help us to understand, to honor, and to obey your word, and to love Jesus, your son to worship him, and to serve him. Thank you. In Jesus' wonderful name we pray. Amen.